advertising fraud continues to plague the internet. We do not know the scope and scale of that fraud. How many ads on the internet are viewed by bots? Estimations range from 2% to 99%. Advertisers are slowly becoming more educated about fraud, thanks in part to Dr. Augustin Fu. Dr. Fu is a full-time advertising fraud researcher. He looks at datasets of billions of ad impressions to figure out how fraud works and help victims of ad fraud make their case. Last year, Dr. Fu came on the show to give an overview of his perspective on the world of ad fraud. Today, we dive into the importance of Twitter in ad fraud schemes. We also talk about the severity of fraud on mobile apps. If you downloaded a flashlight app or an alarm clock app or a keyboard, those apps could be displaying hidden ads that actually never show up. If you like this episode, we have done so many other shows about advertising fraud because this topic fascinates me endlessly. If you want to find those episodes and more, you can download the Software Engineering Daily app for iOS or Android and hear all of our old episodes. You can easily discover new topics that might interest you. You can vote on episodes to get recommendations based on your listening history. Because with 600 episodes, it can be hard to find the episodes that appeal to you. And if you don't like this episode, you can easily find something more interesting by looking at the recommendations in the app. If you want to contribute to the apps in the Software Engineering Daily ecosystem, go to github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. We are looking for people who want to contribute, and it's a great set of open source projects. It's a great community. There's several people who are really hacking on the project at this point, and we've got the Android app, the iOS app, recommendation system, a web front end, and we're definitely looking for contributors. So you can go to github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com, or join our Slack channel, which is available on our website, softwareengineeringdaily.com. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and I hope you check out the mobile app. Augustin Fu is an ad fraud researcher with Marketing Science Consulting Group. Augustin, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeffrey. Glad to be on the show again. Last time we talked about the depths of ad fraud, we gave an overview to the listeners who were unfamiliar with it, or maybe they had heard some of the episodes with Shalin Dar, who has also been on the show a number of times. He is another one of the foremost ad fraud researchers in the space that is still pretty small, the area of forensic ad science. And Shalin lives in San Francisco, so I've hung out with him a few times since our since you and I have last talked. I, I and I talked to him on, you know, maybe a bi weekly basis. And every time I talk to him, he's got interesting stories to tell about how brands are waking up to the realities of advertising fraud. How is business for you? Are you having the same kinds of conversations with these brands? Yeah, it's actually finally come around. I think the topic of ad fraud people have kind of known about uh, for a long time, but they haven't actually been openly talking about it until this year. So with some of the work that the ANA has done around ad fraud and also transparency issues uh, in the ecosystem, more and more marketers are actually starting to talk about it, ask intelligent questions about it and things like that. So, you know, it's actually a very good thing for the industry because we, we need to understand the problem so that we can actually go take appropriate action to solve it and mitigate it. And Shalin always tells me crazy anecdotes when I talk to him. So he tells me about some data set that he's working with because he'll have a client engagement and the client will give him this data set and he'll dig through it and he'll find some interesting URL and he'll go to that URL and be like, the site is, is completely, you know, this is not a real site. Basically, it's infested with bot traffic, things like that. Do you have any crazy anecdotes that you've come across since we last spoke? Uh, yeah, plenty. I mean, bottom line is, would you consider 100% fraud crazy? I mean, it's like these days, uh, you know, I've seen everything. So it's almost like nothing surprises me anymore. But we're still seeing that kind of stuff, you know, all over the place because, you know, the bad guys are still committing the fraud. It's so lucrative for them. You know, why stop, right? You can scale it virtually infinitely 
and uh, there's no cost of entry, right? It's not like the old days where you actually have to set up a website, uh, buy some server hardware, and then you know power a website. Now everything can be pay-as-you-go, uh, done in the cloud, so there's no cost of entry. So mm-hmm. anybody, inclu- you know, from script kiddies to organized crime, right? Anybody can commit ad fraud. Mm-hmm. And so they are because it is so lucrative. Mm-hmm. And the point is, I think marketers ultimately uh, need to be responsible for their own uh, dollars because it's coming out of their pockets and, and you know, they're spending it. Uh, none of the middlemen in the supply chain, you know, will be forthcoming and will actually help in the process of solving fraud. Because even if they're not committing the fraud, they're all benefiting from it because they make tons and tons of revenue on it, right? And so now it's really when the marketers are waking up, that's really the the most important step, which is they have to take control. They have to ask the hard questions, and then they have to take the actions needed to solve fraud in their own buys, right? It's not like the industry can solve it for them, for everyone. Each brand marketer has to do it for their own buys. I think what one thing that's so hard to bring into focus is the fact that when we're talking about ad digital ad fraud you know it doesn't map very well to how we perceive fraud in the real world so like the the mapping to the real world might be you're putting millions and millions of billboards under the ocean and like you're having fish you're like measuring the number of views that fish have on those billboards like that's that's what ad fraud is like but even that is not really an accurate analogy because you can't you can't uh, instantiate oceanic yeah. real estate on the fly and you could do that on you know with uh, with with digital ad fraud you can you can just instantiate space on the internet correct you just make it up out of thin air right so whether it's a site you know they could set up a fake site they put some ad tech on there, and they can start running ads, mm-hmm. right? It's literally that easy. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's very different than in the physical world where you actually have to put up a billboard, right? So, you know, in this case, um, that's why what I meant by it's, it's virtually infinite. You can create as much space as you need because all these fake websites. And, you know, last count from the end of 2016, VeriSign reported 329 million domains registered, Right. So even if you assume that half of those carry ads and the other half doesn't, that's still about, you know, 160 million websites. Right. If you think about where humans go, and you've probably heard of the Alexa top million websites, right? Those are probably where most of the humans go. Right. So the first million website is where majority, 99.999% of the humans go. What, you know, who's going to the second million through the 160th? million domains, right? So for some of these long tail sites, they just in and of themselves don't have enough traffic. And so, you know, in the early days of programmatic, they started resorting to just buying the traffic. And then these days, the bad guys even skip that step. They don't even have sites where any humans go. They don't put any content on them. All they have to do is stick some ad tech on there and just buy 100% of the traffic. And when you buy traffic, you know, again, it's not like there's a whole bunch of humans sitting around with nothing to do, but to go to that specific website that you tell them to go to, right? So where do you think they get all the traffic, right? Mm -hmm. It's all manufactured out of thin air, like we were saying before. So all of this can be, you know, literally built on top of computation and servers in the cloud and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So the, the the sketchy websites, I think people who have listened to this show understand these, you know, the scam where you can set up a WordPress site and you can just have these sketchy websites where you're just funneling fake traffic to it to view the ads. Uh, people are, understand that scheme at this point. You know, the the schemes that that I've I've seen more recently that are really vicious are the mobile advertising schemes because it's really easy to similar to AdSense. Yeah. You know, you can just drop in a little script and it's going to run ads whenever you have a, a user. And you can have, you know, you can have farms of uh, phones, or you could also just do ad stacking within the phones. I think people have a sense, and it's it's not based on any kind of reality, but people have a sense that for some reason, mobile. If you have a mobile app and there's ads on the app, I think it feels a little more real 
than a browser, yeah. but there's there's no reason why that's the case. So that's that's an interesting topic that I would love to touch on. But really, you know, the thing I want to I want to jump to real quick is I was talking to Shalin uh, a couple nights ago, and I was asking him, you know, it's like, okay, so so search search advertising, that's Google's cash cow. You know, I'd also love to talk about Facebook's cash cow, which is the Facebook ad unit. But the the, the search ad unit. I was like, you know, this is the biggest, this is Google's biggest source of revenue. And if, you know, it seems like their hands are clean on that, right? Because, how, I mean, if Google owns the entire pipe, a user enters in a search, they get 10 blue links, there's no, you know, and, and those 10 blue links are vended by Google. Um, if I'm a marketer, I go to Google to purchase that. In order for there to be some sort of fraud, there needs to be a third-party yeah. middleman uh, opportunity for f- kind of the to do the the fraudulent publishing you need a fake exactly right publishing exactly outlet right. so so the the blanket statement we can't say google is all clean and we can't say google is all fraud because there's two parts to it right so for the ads that run on google.com those are pretty clean and the bots that we're talking about are not rampant there that's because they can't make money there so if the ad runs on Google.com and someone clicks on it, then Google makes the money. So these kind of fraud bots are not going to waste their time doing that because they can't make money from it, right? So on on the other hand, if you have a Google search partner yes, network, right, so a site me. that carries the ads, then they can increase their own ad revenue by using bots to click on a whole bunch of stuff, right? So when you have that opportunity to inflate your own revenue – you know, people who are not scrupulous will just cross over and start buying the bot traffic and using that to generate what, more. Revenue. What is a Google search partner? Explain what that is. So I'll use an easier one like a WebMD, right? So WebMD, you know, some sites, most sites are not going to build their own search advertising platform, right? So they just partner with a company like Google or Microsoft. So in this specific case, WebMD and Everyday Health are Microsoft search partner sites, which means when you type in a search term on WebMD, you'll get you know site re- results on WebMD, and you also get some paid results based on the keyword, right? Those are actually served into the site from Microsoft's uh, search network. In that case, WebMD is a search partner that uses the kind of the infrastructure that Microsoft has for search advertising, right? So in that case, that's an example of a third party. Now. I mean, I think WebMD is doing the right thing. They're not deliberately out to cheat, so you don't see rampant amount of bots going on there. But imagine a smaller site, right? They, they, there's not enough humans to grow their ad revenue. What do they turn to? They start turning to bots to do that. So in that case, you know, when we turn on Search Partner Network, we uh, expose ourselves to the risk of some of these sites that are not as scrupulous, right? Not as squeaky clean and actually turn to these artificial methods of generating uh, search ads and clicks so that they can increase their own ad revenue. So the key point here is that you just have to break uh, Google into two parts, right? Or break Microsoft into two parts and break Facebook into two parts. Anything that's on the main site or main property on google.com is probably going to have far less bots and fraud. But anytime you get into the search partner network or like in the case of Facebook and you get into the ad exchange part of it, which is all the sites outside of Facebook itself, that's where you have the financial motive for those sites to commit fraud because they want to grow their revenue. So, so do you see that difference, like the, the yes, main property yes, versus yes, yes. everything else? Okay. Of course. So you're referring to if I want to set up beefrecipes.com and make it a Google search partner – I put a little search bar at the top of my page, and then you can search for beef recipes. In addition to the beef recipe search, you're going to get ten blue. You're going to get a couple ads, a couple search ads. Yep. Now, when Google reports their revenue, and it says, I think twenty, you know, twenty five percent AdSense, the display ads, and it's like seventy five or seventy three percent search advertising. Are the search partners is are is that revenue bundled into that seventy three percent? Yes. Because they don't break out what happened on Google's main property versus mm-hmm. everything else. It's just search they, revenue, right? So we have so, no idea what percentage is, is Google ho- like safe, you know, safe traffic. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. So, so the simple story for buyers is if you want to be safe from this kind of risk, 
is uncheck the checkbox, like say to Google, I only want my ads to appear on Google's main property, not on any of the outside properties. So that's going to be a first step to reduce your risk of fraud. Later, if you need to go to the search partner network, so for example, in Microsoft, for some pharma advertisers, they actually have to turn on search partner network because they want WebMD and they want everyday health. So in those cases, when they turn that on, it's almost like you have to blacklist the other 99%, right, that are not those. But unfortunately, most of these ad exchanges or search, search platforms don't allow you to whitelist. They only allow you to blacklist. So like it would be super easy if I could just whitelist and have those two in there, right? I only want my ads to show up on those. But again, the way it's been set up over the years <clears throat> is that you have to say, I don't want my ads to show up on all these other sites. And oh, by the way, that field is limited to 10,000 rows. So, I mean, for some of my clients, we've maxed out all of that, all 10,000 rows. And then every month we just put in the top 10,000 most egregious search partner sites in there just to cut down on the fraud yeah the, so the blacklist versus whitelist thing is, is kind of interesting i i'm talking to mark goldberg about that in a while uh, a couple days i think and you know basically the premise is if you're going to run ads on a site and you're if you're an advertiser you're gonna, you want to run ads on a site you and but you're aware of the fraud problem you and you have the choice of creating a blacklist or a whitelist it, his approach, at least, is you want to create a whitelist because there the number of things that you would want to blacklist is so long. It's I so mean, large. Yeah, 160 <laughs> million. Yeah, it, it's it so large. Much, I mean, you and, you and I could yeah. sit here and probably in an hour we could enumerate 99% of the sites that we visited in the last year. And mm-hmm. we would just whitelist those because those would be the sites we would want to run ads on. So yes. the notion of a blacklist seems kind of crazy. Well, that's the way a lot of these platforms have been built because uh, they didn't assume you'd have to put in more than 10,000, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was before, you know, a lot of people were even aware of the, the how rampant ad fraud is going to be, right? And how easy programmatic has made it so that you can just create tens of thousands of fake websites and then add them in. So, you know, I think when the pl- those platforms were built, they really didn't contemplate solving for this kind of problem. Right. But but long story short, I think most marketers should have both blacklist and whitelist. So this is very similar to, say, targeting. Right. You might say you want to target the U.S., but it would also be useful to negative target other countries, like literally negative target Russia, China, India, those kind of places, because most of these platforms are not perfect. And so what you want to do is you positively target something and then negatively target something else. Right. So that makes it even more clean. So similarly, you would use both whitelist and blacklist where you have the opportunity. Right. A lot of these platforms don't have a place where you can put in a whitelist. But, you know, if you can do both, do both. Now, there's an there's an underlying assumption to both of this, both of these lists, and that is the accuracy of the list. Right. So if the uh, domain that's being declared is actually the real domain where the ad is going to run, then when you check it against the whitelist or blacklist, you you know can actually take that kind of action. But what if the bad guy just lies about the domain, right? So let me play out a scenario here. If you have a fake site, uh, like fake site123.com, and you put that in the bid request and try to get bids or you know try to get ads and all that kind of stuff, no one's going to bid on your site because they can see it's a fake site. So every fake site, has to pretend to be a good site. So they would go in there and say, yeah, I'm ESPN, or yeah, I'm Wall Street Journal, or yeah, I'm New York Times, right? And they put that into the bid request so that they can actually get bids, right? Because marketers, if they see fakesite123.com, they would never put in a bid. But if they see New York Times or ESPN, they'll say, oh yeah, I want to bid on that. When they bid, and then when they win, then the ad runs, right? And then the fraud detection runs. Because at the time of the bid request, fraud detection, all these tags have not run yet. So uh, only when the ad is served, then the fraud detection that rides along with the ad uh, gets to run. And then they can check to see if, you know, that is in fact the site that it said it was, right? Now, that also relies on the fact that you would actually go back and, 
you know, check through your placement reports and then see, check out those discrepancies, right? But unfortunately, most, you know, buyers, media buyers and all that don't do that second step afterwards. So they kind of just look at the placement reports and what do you think you're going to see in those placement reports, right? It's going to be all legitimate sites because the bad guys' fake sites have to pretend to be a legitimate site in order to sell their inventory, Mm. Right. So again, that's what I mean by you have to determine the accuracy of those lists. Otherwise, your blacklist and whitelist approach won't matter, right? Because you're not actually getting the real site on which the ad was ultimately served. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So one thing I want to ask you about that Mark was telling me is he said Twitter is the source of a lot of problems in, I guess, measurability, understanding what percentage of traffic is fake and what is real. How is Twitter a source of problems in the ad fraud landscape? Well, there's a couple of things. You know, you've all heard in the news about Twitter bots and how they were used to amplify tweets, right? They would just retweet and retweet and then just amplify those messages. And that had a role to play in the 2016 elections. So there, there's bots and fake accounts, all that kind of stuff. And people have known about that for a long time. However, I think he's referring to the fact that MoPub, right, is now owned by Twitter. Uh, and that's the mobile network. Now, what I am seeing in the data is that um, there could be a lot of fraud that appears to be coming from MoPub. But I used to think that it was because of the apps and because of MoPub itself. But now we have recent evidence to maybe kind of refute that hypothesis. There may be bad guys that are deliberately uh, saying that they're MoPub so that uh, MoPub gets in trouble and the bad guys don't get in trouble. Right. So, you know, it's kind of like the false flag uh, concept in war, right, where you're hanging a flag that says you're Mopub. Right. So if people see that there's fraud and they say, oh, it's Mopub, then they call up Mopub and say, oh, well, we're, you know, we're accusing you of fraud. So there's some of that going on as well. So it's not 100 percent certain whether uh, it's actually Mopub causing the fraud. But I'll tell you, you know, like you alluded to earlier in the mobile space, the fraud is even more rampant. So, you know, I've published a few things and I'm working on a study right now where we're seeing literally 100% mobile fraud, mm. right? Literally 100, every single ad impression is fraudulent. And there's several layers to it, right? So in the desktop side, it's it's like you have to have a web page that runs the ad and then you have a visitor go hit the page, right? So typically fraud detection will detect whether that visitor is a bot or a human, right? So they'll report on the bots. In the mobile case, none of that applies because like you said earlier, the app itself could be bad acting, right? So the app, like an alarm clock app, for example, will be loading 10,000 ads, ad impressions in the background. And most of that is in the eight hours when the person's actually asleep, right? <laughs> so the, the app itself is committing the fraud. Now, in that case, there's no bot hitting a web page, right? So those fraud detection uh, technology companies that are looking for bots, they won't find any bots there, right? It's literally the app that just loaded tons and tons of impressions. Okay, so that's one layer. The second layer in mobile fraud is that there's also fake devices. So what if you had a fake mobile device download that app, right, and then run it? Right? It's not even a human's device that downloaded the, that app because there's a whole bunch of these apps that I know of no humans who would ever have heard of it, let alone downloaded it and uses it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, there's been studies from other malware kind of uh, tracking companies where they've seen uh, what they call uh, these fake mobile devices or what they call mobile simulators, right? So it's basically a software program that emulates a mobile device. And the legitimate use of that is like developers would use that to test their apps, right? So that means that mobile simulator can download and install the app, and then they can open and interact with the app, right? That's what those mobile simulators do. So now if you take that mobile simulator, which is software, and you spin up 100 million copies of that in a data center, now you have 100 million mobile devices that can download and install apps. 
right? So I don't know if you remember uh, maybe two months ago, I think in the May timeframe, Google kicked out 40 apps that purportedly had what they called a Judy malware on it. So it was 40 apps. It's not 4,000 apps or 4 million apps. It was 40 hmm. apps. Yeah. But those 40 apps were downloaded by 36 million devices. Now, most of those devices, you know, from our data set, we could see that they were fake devices because, you know, uh, it's not a real human's mobile device. It's just a mobile simulator. So when you do that, you have 40 apps multiplied by 36 million devices. How long do you think it would take each device to load 30 ad impressions, right? Does it take a day? Probably not. Does it take an hour? No, probably a minute to load 30 ad impression. That means yeah. one ad every two seconds. Of course. 30 ads times 36 million fake devices is 1 billion ad impressions that can be generated by this botnet of 36 million fake devices. Mm -hmm. So that's how rampant fraud is because so, there's bad apps and there's fake devices. So Augustine, you know, when I talk to people about this problem sometimes – particularly if they're people in marketing. And I'm I'm in San Francisco, so I think the the marketing people I talk to are are pretty data driven. Uh and so when I talk to them about this problem, they kind of say, "Well, the reason this isn't really a big deal is because the the advertising that people really care about these days is direct response, it's measurable, it's cost per conversion, it's it's cost per acquis uh, cost per acquisition, so like you're you're worried about how many how much ad dollars do i have to spend to get a customer and as long as i'm spending uh $50 to acquire a customer that's going to generate $100 then i'm totally fine and it doesn't matter if i waste some ad spend so do you have a sense for what percentage of ad spend on the internet is spent with uh, with a with that kind of mentality with a cost per acquisition with a with a cost per conversion, with a really uh, funnel, you know, holistic funnel understanding, and how much of it is brand advertising? Because the brand yeah. advertising—that's the stuff that's really liable to to be wasted on fraud here. Yeah. So I have a slide which uh, kind of details the breakdown between what they call branding type spend versus performance type spend. Right. So performance includes the cost per lead, uh, cost per sale, and that kind of stuff. But it also includes uh, search marketing. Because in the search marketing, you don't pay for the impression. You only pay when you get the click. So it is a form of uh, performance marketing. So they break it into branding versus performance. It's different for different industries, right? So for example, the travel and the hotel industry, and maybe say movie tickets and uh, retail, they tend to be very focused on the performance side of things, right? Because they can actually measure it all the way through to a transaction, some of which happens online so they can really close the loop. And then there's other entire categories like CPG or like movies. When there's a big movie coming out, you know, they, they tend to blow a ton of budget to generate awareness. Those are all branding related, right? Because they just need as much reach and frequency as possible to make people aware right, of the movie and maybe remind people of the beer, the soda, and whatever. So depends on the industry. Certain industries are much more heavily weighted towards the branding side of things, and then other industries are much more performance-oriented to begin with. But if you look at the digital spend using the IAB report, two-thirds of digital spend, it's slightly going down in recent years, but about two-thirds or 60% of the digital spend is still in search. So most of digital is still performance oriented, even though lately with the rise of Facebook and the rise of programmatic, it's been shifting more back towards the, the branding side because of the proliferation of display ads, video ads, mm -hmm. and mobile display, and so on and so forth. When you perform an audit for a brand or an agency, can, can you describe that process? Like who is coming to you and saying, Hey, I'm worried about this this issue. Is it a brand? Is it an agency? And and how does that progress? Yeah, it's it's usually um, what I call the two endpoints, right? So on one side you have the advertisers who are paying out the dollars, and then on the other endpoint you have the publishers, right? These are the sites like the Hearst, the Condé Nast uh, that carry the ads. Uh, it's typically the endpoints that care, right? Because again, like I've said in the past, the middlemen 
you know, make more money on the volume of ads that are shown. So they really have no motive to cut down on the fraud and all that kind of stuff. So it's typically, I'll, I'll talk about the brand side, right? So when a marketer sees something and they've read something and said, oh, well, you know, something looks strange here, but I can't explain it. You know, our media buyers can't explain it. And then networks won't explain it or they'll say, oh, don't worry, we're clean, right? Then the brand starts asking more questions and then they ask for help. So when they ask for help, I can use technology to go collect the data. So, you know, I'm being very specific about the words collect the data, right? It's not necessarily doing measurement or saying it's more fraud or less fraud or whatever. It's collecting sufficient data so that we can actually see what's going on, right? In some cases, we'll see, okay, it looks pretty clean. You really don't have anything to worry about, right? But in other cases, we might see, oh, well, here's an area, here's a problem area. Uh, that you got to look deeper into, right? And so having more detailed data and analytics gives us the ability to figure out where the problem is, right? So I sometimes use the analogy of a smoke detector, right? It, it just helps you uh, kind of determine where to look for the fire, right? It doesn't help you put out the fire. It doesn't, you know, so on and so forth. It's really knowing where to look and knowing what to look for is important. So that being said, you know, a lot of people, a lot of brands think you need super advanced technology to detect this stuff. You can, and you may need it, but why don't we start with the low-hanging fruit, right? So I'll give you one example that I wrote about in the DMA Analytics Journal, uh, Direct Marketing Association uh, Analytics Journal. It's look at your own analytics and look for anything that smells, you know, smells fishy or, or something that looks strange. For example, straight lines. So, you know, I'll, I'll use a traffic example, right? So when you turn on a botnet to hit a site, you're going to see a vertical rise in the amount of traffic, right? It goes straight up. And then every hour, it's going to have the exact same amount of traffic as you just told the botnet, hit this site X thousand times, right? So then you're going to see a straight horizontal line because every hour there's the same exact amount of traffic. And then when you turn off that botnet, you see a vertical drop, right? So anytime you see straight lines in analytics, something's wrong with that because humans don't move that way, right? So very simply, if you look at normal traffic patterns from major publishers, right, humans go to the site during waking hours. And so you'll see more traffic during waking hours. And then overnight, humans sleep. So between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m., that should be the lowest point of your traffic charts, right, on, of every day. And then furthermore, there's a typical pattern of five plus two, right? Five weekdays usually have more traffic than the two weekend days. So those are normal patterns. And if you see, oh, it's the same exact amount of traffic, you know, hour after hour, day after day, something's wrong with that, right? You don't need any advanced fraud detection technology to know something strange. And then you look into that and say, okay, where is that coming from? And then you can see the referrers and other things. And then you can say, okay, I don't want to buy traffic. I don't want to buy ads on those sites anymore because something's strange. So that's just an example where you know, marketers can now increasingly take matters into their own hands and start looking at uh, things that they already have, which are their own analytics, to see if there's anything strange. Mm -hmm. And then after those low-hanging fruit are kind of taken care of, then you apply more technology to help you detect you know, the, the more advanced stuff, right? So all of those fraud detection technology companies are great and you can use them to kind of suss out uh, additional fraud that's more advanced that's not so apparent in your own analytics, right? But again, it's a multi-step process. So the audit is typically that. It's like they feel like something's wrong, but they don't know what it is and can't explain it. So then I go in and use data collection, use technology to collect the data combine that with looking at their analytics. And again, because we've seen so much stuff over the years, I know what to look for. Mm. And so in that case, we can actually say, oh, yeah, look here, right? This is something strange. Let's, and then sometimes we might need to add some technology to help us, you know, label it humans or bots or whatever. And all of that helps us uh, determine what's going on and then what steps to take afterwards. Mm. So it's usually pretty straightforward. It's a combination of technology and methodology and these clients you have so uh, yeah, i've talked to Shalin a couple times and he 
is working with some people right now who are there's some legal action that's going to take place. I'm I'm pretty sure. Uh, I don't know how much I could talk about that, but these clients that you work with, when they discover we've just been bilked for hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, or millions of dollars, what recourse do they have, and are they starting to take advantage of that recourse? Um, I think that's starting now because they finally realize that that actually is fraud, right? But uh, up till now, most of them didn't realize that, or they, they've already handed off a lot of their budget to a media buying agency. So it's never really been the brand's responsibility to do that. They just assumed someone else took care of it. But now increasingly brands are, again, taking matters into their own hands. So legal could be one recourse that they have. But, you know, like I said you know, before, ad fraud is not illegal, right? A lot of people don't understand that. There's no law against it right now. So that's why some of these bad guys or not, not necessarily bad guys, they're just take, arbitraging a current opportunity, right? They can buy the ad impressions for very, very low CPMs and resell it to someone else who's willing to pay more for it, right? And keep the difference. So that's like free enterprise in America, right? So, you know, they're not necessarily the bad guys. They're just taking advantage of an opportunity. But that's because ad fraud itself uh, hasn't been defined as illegal. But if you look at other parallels, right, counterfeit handbags, okay, those brands, the Gucci's and, you know, the LVMH's of the world have recourse now because they can actually sue the people who made the fake items because, you know, they're taking away revenue and all that kind of stuff. So there will be other parallels that we can draw from, right? So in this case, in the case of ad fraud, marketers thought they were buying real Gucci handbags. I mean, real ads shown to real humans. Mm. But in fact, they find out, oh, we're not, right? Someone sold us counterfeit ads, just like counterfeit handbags. And so now some of them are realizing, okay, maybe we need to take legal action uh, to, to stop that. So in your travels, are you talking to ad exchanges or are you talking to Google or Facebook? Who are the giants in the industry that you're having conversations with? None of them. They're just not interested? Uh, the ones who are have already reached out. So, you know, it, it's pretty straightforward to say, um, you know, I don't need to keep banging my head against the brick wall trying to convince people to do the right thing when they don't want to do the right thing. So these days it's like, okay, you know where to find me. If you're interested in actually taking a look and doing something about it, you know, you know where to call me or email me or whatever. Right. So you've heard the term FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. <laughs> yes. There's a ton of FOFO here, right? F-O-F-O, fear of finding out. Because mm -hmm. if a brand manager, you know, has been buying this stuff for years and years, they don't actually want to find out that the stuff that they've been doing for years and years has not been that great. So they would rather just not find out, let their agency keep doing what they're doing. And, you know, it's, it's probably better that way. Let's not rock the boat. Let's just keep everything the same. So, you know, it takes someone with courage to say, I really want to find out. Okay, even if it might be bad news, I'd rather know now rather than wait and waste more money on this. So there's a lot of that going on, right? So even the brand managers, the marketers themselves are only now coming around to it and saying, okay, we probably better find out, right? It, we can't just let it ride anymore. So I think that's what's happening and, and we're kind of all seeing that, you know, marketers are really paying a lot more attention and that's a good thing for the industry because fraud has been rampant for so long and been so rampant now, when the people who are actually taking money out of their pockets are actually paying attention, something good's going to happen hmm. for the whole industry. Do you have a sense for how that tide is going to change? Like, what's I mean, what's it going to take? Like, so like I'm I'm watching the tropical storm or the the hurricane that just destroyed Houston. Like, Houston is underwater now, and I. I I think people are biting their tongue right now, but I have a suspicion that this is going to be a a change in how people think about climate change. Like for better or worse, more people are going to be convinced of climate change after this. You have a a red state that one of its major its biggest city gets 
thrown underwater, this is going to change how people talk about climate change. Is there an equivalent event that can happen that will make people start to take ad fraud seriously? No. And you know why? Because all of us fraud researchers and other companies have been telling them it's a multi-billion dollar problem. But whether we tell them it's a $6 billion problem or a $16 billion problem or a $29 billion problem, we've told them that over years and none of that has caused them to take action. Okay, so that's not going to be it. It's not going to be some cataclysmic event where we tell them it's really, really big and then they're going to go do something about it. But it's going to be something else. And what I think is going to happen, you know, we've already seen examples of this. So you've heard of the news where Chase reduced the number of sites that carried (laughs) their ads from 500,000 to 5,000. That is a 99% decrease. And they saw no change in business outcomes. Okay. And then P&G, you know, subsequent to that, they cut $140 million out of Q2 digital ad spend. And they saw no change in business outcomes. With that, you know, the, the takeaway that most brands should have is like, oh, well, we should go run our own experiments, right? Not all of them will be cutting $140 million out of their budget, but what if you cut 5%? What if you cut 10%? Run that experiment for yourself. And the, the thing that's common to both of those experiments that these brands ran, Chase and P&G, is that they looked at business outcomes. Did that spend actually drive any business outcomes? And did the reduction of that spend actually drive and you know lead to any reduction in business outcomes? In both cases, it was no. So that means whatever they were spending in those cases did not drive productive business outcomes anyway. So it's not even whether it's fraud or not, right? If it's not driving business outcomes, there's no reason for you to keep investing in it, right? So in that case, uh, you know, if there's one takeaway from this entire show, it would be for the brands to actually go run their own experiments. Because when they do, they will actually kind of see reality and start to understand, you know, where the investments are not paying off. So once they know where that, what, you know, what's causing that, then they can say, let's reallocate those dollars to something that's actually going to pay off for us. So, you know, getting back to what you said earlier, like the brand advertisers versus the performance ones, some of the brand advertisers might actually be better served going back to TV because if they need brand reach and they need reach and frequency, there is no medium better than TV to achieve that, right? Digital is inherently a performance medium. And so, you know, it's suboptimal to use it strictly for reach and frequency. And I attribute a lot of the fraud, ad fraud, to people using digital incorrectly. If they want more reach and they just keep saying, buy me as much impressions, as many billions upon billions of impressions as possible, that's what led to the fraud. Because there just aren't enough humans sitting around with nothing to do but to go to websites and generate page views and generate ad impressions. Whereas there's unlimited bots the bad guys can create to create unlimited ad impressions to absorb all of those marketing dollars. So in that case, when your MO in digital is buy me as much as possible, you are exposing yourself to, you know, enormous risk of fraud because bad guys love that. They just want to absorb all your money if you're if that's your sole objective. However, if these brands start realizing, okay, well, let's actually focus on business outcomes, not on how much we buy then that's going to be a better way of thinking for the entire industry. A lot of people will say they're already doing that. But number of impressions divided by the cost that you pay is not business outcomes, right? That's that's what's been reported, you know, by a lot of the reports that they get back. And that's not ROI, right? So you focus on real ROI based on your own business outcomes. And then you'll start to realize what's actually driving that and what's not driving that. And then you can spend your money better. And I think a lot of the brands are just starting to do that now. Facebook is an interesting story we could talk about here. I think I feel like Facebook is even harder to audit than perhaps even Google. Do you have any 
thoughts on how much of Facebook traffic or Instagram traffic the the campaign I mean you know I think the advantage of of Facebook what's what's nice about Facebook at least in the long run is it is more of a walled off ecosystem well I guess if 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 you know if people are just working a Chrome browser then that's kind of like a, a an authenticated ecosystem that's really the the issue yeah. that we're thinking about here is there you know is there a layer of authentication that is recording your data so that you can be proven to be a human when your views are being sold on the internet if the the publisher in in this case google or facebook can detect that you're a human through a large sample set of your actions taken across the internet then your your impressions your actions are much more valuable than if they cannot prove who you are because the null hypothesis yeah. is that you're yeah. a bot there's just so many more bots than there are humans on the internet yes. that uh so so yeah that's that's the big question but yeah that's directionally correct, but I, I would simplify it to say you follow the money and you boil it down to whether the bots have a financial incentive to do stuff or not. So logged in environments are generally better, right? So when you're logged into Gmail and you're logged into various Google services, they have some information about you and they might even see you walking around the physical world, right? Because when, you when you're logged in on your Android device, they'll, they'll have GeoTrace and all that kind of stuff, right? Same thing with Facebook. In a logged-in environment, it's generally better. It's more humans and all that. But you know bots can also maintain accounts, right? They can be logged in to Twitter and tweet things. Okay, so simply being logged in is not enough. You have to look at whether the bots have a financial motive, right? If they can make money at it, they probably would. If they can't make money at it, they probably won't waste their time because there's other things they can be doing that's actually making them money. So it comes back to what we already talked about earlier in the show, which is on Google.com, right, there's probably not a lot of bots rampant there because they can't make money. When the ad loads there and gets clicked, Google makes the money. Similarly, on Facebook itself or in Twitter itself, right, you're going to have the same phenomena where the bots can't make money or they don't make money. That's why they're not going to waste their time doing it, right? So in those cases, it's it's not a, so much about being logged in or not, because bots can be logged in as well. It's more about whether the bots have a financial motive to act or not, right? So on the main properties, that's why those uh, things are cleaner. Now, uh, people in the industry have kind of accused Facebook of, oh, well, you won't let us measure, so you must be hiding something, right? Okay, that's possible, right? It's better if they did let the industry standard bodies uh, measure them. However, I don't even care about that. I, when I'm seeing the data coming from my clients' campaigns and we only look at the clicks coming from Facebook to, say, a landing page that we're tracking, the clicks coming from Facebook are far, far more human than clicks coming from other sources of media, right? So in that case, I'm only looking at the outcomes. Did we actually see a human click through from a Facebook ad versus the percentage of humans that click through from other ads, whether it's search ad or display ad. In this case, because that channel, i.e. Facebook, is sending us more humans and other channels are sending us less humans and more bots, it's a very simple thing for the marketer to do to optimize their spend. It's allocate more dollars to channels that are sending them more humans. So in this case, I don't actually have to measure on Facebook itself. I can see the outcomes. People are clicking on the ads from Facebook and coming to my site, and I can confirm that they're humans. So in that case, when we see way, way more humans coming from Facebook, that's a good investment, right? So, so there's a lot of those kind of factors. Even if I can't measure on Facebook itself, I'm still seeing good results, and that's what matters to you as a marketer. Switching back to Google, there was something recently earlier this week or last week where google refunded some partners for some ad fraud stuff mm -hmm. what happened what what happened there well they're they're trying to be proactive about it because you know the alternative is far worse than that and more embarrassing so i think they started to realize that a portion right they're not going to say a lot but they're going to say a portion of the inventory is actually faked, right? So this goes back to what we talked about earlier, which are fake sites can only sell their inventory by pretending to be legitimate sites, 
right? So a fake site is going to pretend to be ESPN in order to sell their inventory on exchanges. So when Google sees that, right, and they can see it, right, it's this site ID and all that kind of stuff. Even if in the bid request it's, it says it's ESPN, but it's not. Google can see that, and what they went out went ahead and did is they refunded the double click fees, right? So Google, because it ran on double click, they took some fees, and now Google refunded that. So I think it's a step in the right direction, but what a lot of people haven't talked about is the fact that the marketers still haven't gotten their money back from the ad exchange that, you know, were the pipes and then the ultimate fake site that carried the ad. And they may never get the money back because once that money is spent and gone to those fake sites, you're never going to see those dollars again, right? So I think what Google is doing is it's distancing itself from the fraudsters who actually own those sites. But uh, the marketer only got a small portion of their money back from Google, but they still have to go chase the other ad exchanges that ultimately sold the ad impression and the ultimate site that ran the ad impression, right? So there's still a lot to that story, but I think it's a step in the right direction and Google's trying to do the right thing. But again, it's, it's not, it may not be enough, right? There's still much more work to be done. I want to begin to wrap up. What else are you seeing that's interesting or alarming that we have not discussed? Um, I think we kind of covered it, and that, that was kind of the mobile side. So, I mean, the mobile side is kind of new frontier still. I mean, because the, you know, only recently did uh, mobile spend get to be greater than 50% of digital ad spend, right? So now mobile is the majority of spend. But mobile is, you know, mostly in-app impressions, and those are the ones that can't be measured by uh, fraud detection technology companies. Now, there are fraud detection SDKs, but the bad guys' apps don't install fraud detection SDKs in them, right? So what we're seeing, what we're able to measure are the good apps. So of course we're seeing low fraud because we're only measuring the good apps. We're not measuring the 99% other apps that are not good, right? So there's a lot of uh, still kind of misunderstanding or I would call it misinformation uh, in people's minds because they think mobile is cleaner, has no fraud, don't worry about it. But if I were to leave one key message, it would be now is the time to be more vigilant than ever, not less vigilant than ever. Because just know that the bad guys are hackers and they have better tech than you do. And their MO is to find ways and workarounds so that they can continue making money. So they will find ways around your blocking, your filtering, your fraud detection, everything, because their livelihood depends on it. So they will do that. So even if your fraud detection reports tell you it's all clean, don't just assume that and do nothing else, right? Look at other things like your own analytics to see if you can corroborate that, see if that even makes sense, right? So if the fraud reports say it's clean, but then in your own analytics, you see the same amount of traffic every hour of every day, something's still wrong with that. Go ask the hard questions, right? So don't just assume it's okay because the fraud reports say it's okay. So it's time to be more vigilant, not less vigilant. All right, Augustin Fu, thanks for coming back on Software Engineering Daily. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and look through your alarming slides. <laughs> that's that's what's fun. So uh, thank you, Jeff. Good to be on again. And, you know, hopefully, you know, the industry will continue kind of taking steps. And, you know, I think uh, it bodes well for the entire uh, digital advertising ecosystem. All right. Sounds good. Great. 